Hello, Ramblers, and welcome to the latest Ramble Meets with me, Andy Brassel. Now, I know that for all of you listening, the current situation is, is challenges and we've all had to adapt. Of course, we're all recording and producing our shows for Football Ramble daily at home at the minute. But if we're stuck inside, then so is everyone else. And I'd really wanted to get today's guest, Jan Fjortoft, on for a long while. Um, but as you might be aware, he now works in television, as seen on a variety of Champions League touchlines all over Europe. So I thought that the fact that all Norwegians who've been abroad were locked down even before the rest of the population might give me a chance to catch him and so it proved uh, he was really generous with his time and I'm sure you'll love it it's not just a great journey from home via Austria to the Premier League and beyond but as you'll discover he's a really great storyteller too so when we pick up the story with Jan he's already started playing in his childhood home of Gerskin which is a small village in western Norway in a mini stadium called River Plate because it's around the time of the 1978 World Cup and the pitches next to the river handily and now his eyes have been drawn towards the bright lights of professional football down the road at hood what happens next let jan tell you this is ramble meets with jan agafjortoft so how did it come from you playing as someone who enjoyed the game locally to the point where you actually signed well you turned pro with them at 17 didn't you is that right well, what happened is that we were like, and a lot of all the villagers, we were depending on our dads and uncles to be coaches and so on. And, uh, I, rem- and I remember when I was 14, we had, uh, we had uh, uh, my dad came to me and he was in oil. He was a captain on a supply ship. And he said to me, uh, yeah, listen, uh, I know we, we don't have got a good coach for you. So this year I'm going to be your coach. And I said, but dad, we have a problem. You're away half of the year. And he said, well, that's no problem. On the other shift, there is another guy. And he can do it. Uh, but he has never played football. He's never been a coach. So I always said that five years before I made my debut for the full Norwegian national team, I had Olav on the other shift as my coach. So it just shows you there are so many roads going all the way to, to the top, so to say. And, and for me, it was a natural step when I was 15 that I went to... Uh, the, the biggest club in the region, uh, the, the, the club called HUD. And they had, a, they had a good proven record to develop young players. Uh, they, they did that in the 70s when they were up, up in the top flight. And even they had a guy called Åge Harreide, who is now the Danish national coach and, and, lay, and later then played for, uh, or in the beginning of the 80s, played for Manchester City and Norwich. So, so, so I kind of knew about that. And I, and I remember when I was... I remember when I was nine, that was the first time I met Olga Harreide. He was a, as a schoolmate of my uncle and that was a big, big day for a, for a young Jan. And, and I'm happy and proud to say that Olga Harreide is now one of my best football friends. And so after building your career in Norway at Hod and at Lillestrom, you end up going to Rapid Vienna at 22. You yeah. have some great seasons there. And then by the time you're what in your mid 20s, you end up going to England. And uh, presumably, this was always in your mind because, you know, I have Norwegian friends, I know how they are about English football. And I, I guess that was. A- English football was always a big part of your football upbringing? Absolutely. And, and uh, as you know, or maybe you know, but since 1969, we all, always had our match of the day that started Norwegian time, four o'clock, and your time, three then. And we always had one game. And every player, every 
person my generation and yeah, older and younger they would all have their English favorite team mine was Leeds because I was in the 74-75 I, I uh, d- discovered them when they played Bayern Munich in that famous European Cup final when it was no offside of course <laughs> I haven't seen it since 1975 <laughs> but 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 uh, yeah so England was always on my mind but at that time we didn't have a a great tradition in Norway to to transfer players abroad. Uh, the the big clubs or the big leagues or, or didn't look to Norway. We we didn't have a lot of professionals. And at the time when I went from Lillestrøm to Rapid Vienna, the 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 top record fee out of Norway was seventy thousand pounds, and I was sold for three hundred thousand pounds. So that was a big big step for us. And while I was in Vienna, uh, we. We slowly get a better national team, which I think is a key for every country. If you see Belgium, Switzerland, Austria, all these kind of smaller football nations, you need to have a good national team to kind of be on the international stage. And slowly, my my mates like Eric Torstwit going to Tottenham and so on, that, that open the doors for us others because then they saw well it's at this time it's good to have Norwegians there because they are they train well they're, they're more like us they they speak the language uh, and they are good guys because we had some role models like like Torstved uh, coming over so that kind of opened the door uh, for me being in Vienna and I was also a bit lucky because in, in those days, we didn't have Bosman. So after a contract was up, you were kind of, yeah, we, we, you just had to wait. Uh, what, what the club would do is it was not in your hands. There was no power. They could kind of block everything. So after four years, I thought four years is enough. I, I After the first year, I was very close to going to QPR together with a teammate of mine, Andreas Herzog. Uh, but Trevor Francis got sacked and he, he watched a lot of our games. I met Trevor Francis in Vienna. So we were very close to going there. But after four years, I knew this was enough. I was, uh, I was 26. Uh, I had to make another step so I kind of orchestrated my going away because I I had to go away and then I was lucky and good enough like in those days you had to do videos of your highlights very bad quality but you sent them around you sent them around in big white envelopes and I sent it to all the agents I knew and some football people and one of them was David Hay and David Hay being a Celtic legend being a a Chelsea player at this time he was my manager in Lillestrøm so I sent him a, a tape he, he saw my goals and then and then uh, after a while in these days you kind of you're not happy if, if someone doesn't reply after one hour uh, this is like if you reply after four, two weeks we were happy and I was I was at my grandparents house in Norway and I remember they said there is this guy who wants to get hold of you you have to give him a call and that was David Hay and David Hay said that said that Glenn Hoddle had left Swindon and their assistant manager, John Gorman, was was about to be the next manager, and and he was uh, David Hayes supposedly be the assistant manager, and he said, if if I get that job, we are we are very eager to get you to uh, to England. But by this time, you'd already kind of announced yourself to the English public a little bit before that, because of course. The summer of 1993 was the summer of, well, for us, the infamous Norway 2 England nil in the World Cup qualifier, which you played a, a big part in. So how were you greeted when you got to England, having been part of that? 
Well, I was greeted by the Scottish players. Very welcome. <laughs> they, they, they kind of loved me. But, but it's true. It is true. At the same time that I played in Vienna, I had a chance to play for our national team. And, and we got Egil Olsen as a coach and we did very well. We, we went into a qualification group with, with San Marino was the weakest team, of course. But then we have Turkey, uh, Holland, Poland and England and it was an enormous group for a small Norwegian team and we ending up winning the group uh, we ending up scoring the most goals in that group so yeah so I, I guess we we made a name of ourselves and I think that it was also a indirect uh, consequence of us doing well as I said in the beginning that the national team did well because then we showed that we can do it on an international stage and there was a big chance that we, we will do it on in, in better leagues and uh, in, in a lot of these players that played for Norway at that time was in England or ended up playing in England so so I guess that you can say that the, the national team helped us take the next step and I think also that that there were so many Norwegians we were at the time we were like between uh, around 25 players who played in the Premier League and that also helped the national team of course yeah I mean it was incredible it was a real golden age wasn't it for Norwegians in the Premier League in those first couple of years of the Premier League I used to love Ivan Lernardson of course you set up that first goal for him against England in, yeah. in 93 I mean when you look back at that era now does it make you feel sad that there aren't quite as many Norwegians in, in the Premier League or is that just a fact of life that you live with well first of all I, I see now in Norway we we were supposed tomorrow to play uh, uh, the National League semi-final against Serbia obviously yeah. uh, cancelled but but uh, first of all I, I, I and then people say well we haven't been at a, uh, at a, at a championship since 2000 that, and that is 20 years well when we qualified in 93 for the 94 World Cup we hadn't been in a, uh, in a championship since 1938 so uh, at the time that we, that we succeeded doing that it, when I see, look back now it's, it's more of a proudness <clears throat> because I see that uh, at that time Norway we loved our skiers and we, we did well in, in different sports but to do well in football that made a small country like Norway very very proud and I think that to be a part of that uh, kind of mission of identity a positive nationalism I'm very proud to be a part of that and a lot of those players I, I don't think we knew at that time that we were potentially quite good leaders but sometimes uh, uh, small nations they depending on good generations i guess big big countries do as well we know the golden generation of england for, uh, which didn't do as good as they could have and we also saw that in germany with schweinsteiger and lahm who also used a bit time bef before they won the champions league in 13 and the world cup in 14 but still we are depending on it because we can't lose any generation and uh, there was a bit also a bit timing because I came to England in year two of Premier League uh, and that was before everything exploded at any foreign player would end up in England because of the money, because of the quality and, and so on and so on. So so I always tell the story about me being at Sky talking about how it is like to be a foreigner in English football. And now the fact is that you have English people talking about how it is to be an Englishman in, in uh, English football. And so things changed. So it was a good timing. We had an agent who was good in the English market, uh, a guy called Runa Hauga, as everybody knew, knew at the time, took a lot of players over. 
we had a we had a national coach who had a great philosophy. He was a bit ahead of his time because we were very good uh, defensively, but also the way we attacked, we attacked with like unbelievable speed and till the other teams kind of realized that that not only the passing that some clubs and national teams at that time thought was the key to everything we kind of rushed in goal after goal and and if you have a look at the second goal that we scored against England at home it was like back our goalkeeper was forward and back and up to me back to one player putting him in and it's one nil two nil against England and so I think that we we kind of shocked the way we we played we shocked them and we managed to do that for three four years and when you did make it to the Premier League, it, it was a sort of slow start for you, but a real season of two halves at, at Swindon because you couldn't get it going at all before Christmas. And then all of a sudden, with this goal you score against Tottenham, you're off and away. And all of a sudden, you're scoring goals for fun. And there's even a possibility that Swindon could stay up for a, a little bit. Well, what happened is that when I came to England, like you said, I mean, I felt it was a dream come true. I still, I still get that goosebumps when I think of me flying into Heathrow, knowing that I'm going to play in, in the English Premier League, that I'm going to play in England and be able to play against the best teams teams that I've followed since I was born. And the first game we played at Bramall Lane, and we played a 1-1. I got a knock. I think we got a 1-1. I think it was. And I got a knock on my foot. Uh, I, I got a, a small injury or a small. It was an injury that, that kind of didn't help me. But did I tell the manager? Did I tell the physio? Of course I didn't because I wanted to play on. Uh, and I thought that I was not used to being injured anyway. And I thought for a goal getter, if you're in there, you're lucky to get that goal and so slowly uh, over the autumns going uh, autumn getting more and more games I didn't play well I didn't uh, break the code to English football and what is happening then is that you you kind of lose your confidence so people saying that the the manager will lose confidence in you well that you can get back I mean that that, that you can somehow get back but the, the worst thing is to kind of lose your confidence in yourself so it's funny enough, at the same time we are qualifying for the World Cup, funny enough, I score a decided goal in Poland that gets us to the World Cup. So it was kind of two worlds for me. And, and when I came back, to, so, so but slowly when you lose your confidence, you think, do I have to do something else? Do I, do I have to play another way? Uh, well, is my quality, well, the quality is enough maybe for Austrian football and the philosophy of the national team? And then you kind of, kind of get into a terrible circle and uh, Christmas Eve uh, uh, 1993 is a dome point in my career I'm playing for Swindon B team again a reserve team against Wickham reserves in a in a place outside Swindon that they were so windy I, that our explorer the Norwegian explorers didn't uh, wouldn't have survived it in the North Pole and the South Pole and I had I had three jackets under my shirt I was the worst man on the pitch and I came home I came home in my house and my parents were there my brother and sisters came from England to celebrate Christmas and I opened the door it was like five o'clock in the at Christmas Eve and I said just have a look at my face 
A, is still frozen, and B, it's not possible to go lower in a football career than I am now because I'm gone. And, uh, and then my, my, uh, we had a great Christmas and, and I was on the bench getting some minutes. And then my, my son was born the 12th of January and I have signed a new uh, a loan contract in Lillestrøm going home because I, I wanted to save my place in the squad for the World Cup. I mean, uh, I, I couldn't miss that as a Norwegian. But uh, then uh, I, uh, we played a FA Cup game away at Ipswich and uh, one of our strikers, I thought, I think it was Keith Scott, he was cup-tied and I got the chance and still the same story, hitting the post, doing the right decisions. But then I got my first goal and in, for, in England and then against uh, a Tottenham at home, as you said, in a 1-1 game, I scored the, the 1-0 uh, goal. A funny story there is that Eric Torstwet was was, who was one of my roommates in the national team, he was stretched off after like, in my, in my head, I'm not sure if exact the time, but like 16, 17 minutes. So he stretched off that big lad and that's a great friend of mine. And I went over to him and I said, you are a... F- if- can we swear on this podcast? No, we can't. Yeah, okay, okay. I said to him, well, you fucking coward, you're going off now and I'm about to score my first goal in the Premier League. And 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 Ian Walker came on and like five, six minutes later, I, I made my first goal in the Premier League. And then I could, and then, and, and then, then, you, then, then I couldn't stop scoring. And I think at that time, and so, someone reminded me, me the other day, I think from, from January then and out, I think it was only Leticia who scored more goals than me in, in the whole Premier League. So, so the, it, it was basically that I, that we had a team that conceded goals for fun, but we went forward. We loved to go forward. Uh, we played with a, with a guy called Nicky Summerby, if you remember him, the son of his, son of his dad. Uh, it was a fantastic crosser of the ball. But unfortunately, we, we, we conceded too many goals. We were a bit naive. We were a newly promoted team and we had a manager John Gorman, the nicest man in football, who who still wanted us to to pass the ball and and be positive going going forward. And and at the end of the season, we had considered hundred and we scored six goals less than Arsenal, who were fourth or fifth in the Premiership. So so it was a it was a unbelievable roller coaster season for me. But when you bear in mind that start and the low point you were talking about against Wickham Reserves, how does it make you feel if, if you've been back to the county ground since and seeing that mural of, of yourself on, on the wall doing the aeroplane celebration? You know, it, it shows that like when Swindon fans talk about their best ever players, they really talk about you and Don Rogers, don't they? Who scored the goals in the League Cup final against Arsenal in the late 60s. Yeah, well, I think that, uh, first of all, very honoured to do that. And, and sometimes, a couple of times when I brought my, I played for some clubs and I bring them back and I'm always, get it, always a good welcome. And, and my son always said when he was a kid, why don't you do this often? And I said, yeah, I could do that, but I'm, I'm more that I kind always look forward, but I, but but it makes me makes me happy into and, and be proud. But on, on the other hand, I'm very. I mean, I missed. I could I could have loved to play again. Played for the big big teams like Liverpool and Manchester United or Chelsea and whatever. But uh, different things, lack of quality maybe didn't or timing or whatever didn't take me to the next step. But when I see back on especially uh, my time in England, is that I was fortunate to play 
at Swindon, at Middlesbrough, at Barnsley, especially Sheffield United was a bit different. Although we we had a very hopeful team there that lost the playoff final, and then two players, Brian Dean and myself, was were sold on the same day and kind of crushed that team. But 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 I was at the time in Swindon and Barnsley, Middlesbrough, where there were, were there was an enormous optimism around the city, and not only as a football team, there was that proudness, that identity, that kind of thing that for the first time ever they had a chance to play against the big teams you can imagine Barnsley going to Anfield and winning you can imagine Swindon play Manchester United at home and we, we had a 2-2 draw with Smeichel and that golden generation slowly coming with Eric Cantona stabbing uh, John Moncur I mean this proudness yeah and this proudness the kind of these areas these regions had was unbelievable and I think that maybe as I I was the goal scorer as I was a guy that had my airplane celebration that I basically often I'm in good mood uh, I think that then I'm maybe uh, fortunate to be one of the symbols for that uh, great period of time and th- there's this story before you go to to Middlesbrough which is sort of on the home straight of their promotion running so it would have been like your second season at Swindon, wasn't, wouldn't yeah. it, after relegation, that you, that you end up joining one of the promotion chases in, in Middlesbrough. I've, I've got to ask you, there's this story that um, you don't know what's going on with any potential transfer. So you ring up Ricky Hunt, the chairman, pretending to be a journalist. Is this right? It's right, but I'm not sure. That I, think, I don't think it was Ricky Hunt. I think there was that, that guy with the beard. What was his name? I can't remember his name. Because uh, there, there were kind of two chairmen and Ricky Hunt coming then from, from the oil company, Burma, I think. Uh, yeah. So, but anyway, uh, there was the chairman, uh, a bearded guy, and I was, uh, I was sitting at the back of the bus. And at that time, there was not... There were not the many people who had a, a, a mobile phone, but he was one of them, and I was one of one or two players who had it. So I had his number, and I called him. That's true. And I'm sitting in the back seat, and I and I'm saying that I'm a Norwegian journalist, and I just want to interview you about Jan Fjortoft. And he said, Yeah, 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 good, good, good lad, and blah 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 blah, scoring a lot of goals. Yeah, but we're just wondering about his future. Yeah, well, we probably let him go, but it's all about the offers we're getting in at the moment. Is not happening a lot. And I said, Thank, thank you very much, and say hello to Jan so that is a 100% true story (laughs) (laughs) so you you end up at Middlesbrough as you say an extraordinary time for Middlesbrough as well because I mean you played the end of that season at at Ayrson Park didn't you before they moved to the Riverside at at the start of the next season when they, they they got promoted I mean after that Middlesbrough really start to get momentum in 95-96 you have this great start to the season before if you fall out of the European places at the end but of course there's this great click between you and Juninho yeah exactly and the, what what I thought after after Swindon I thought that the premiership club would come in for me I I kind of hope that someone will get in because this season I ended up scoring 28 28 goals in all competitions but uh, but 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 that n- never happened and and then Brian Robson called and you know how it's like I mean that's what Kenny Dalglish always did at Blackburn I mean when Brian Robson called you you kind of say yes before you come to Robson uh, because you you want to be a part of that aura of, of uh, that great player they they sold me a project they sold me Riverside Stadium as you said I played the last games that season I played at Ayrson Park I was fortunate to score the they called it 
the bus aldering goal at uh, at the Riverside because Craig Hignett scored a first and I scored a second. Uh, but I had a big, big chance that I missed in the last game of Airson Park, and I always think oh, I should have had the last in the last game of Airson the first in Riverside. But it was unbelievable, exciting times. And when I came there, I came there for one point three million pounds, who then was the record signing. And then we got Nicky Barmby. I think he came for like five, so we kind of. Uh, four times the 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 amount that they gave for me, and so things were going very quickly. And it was funny enough uh, that Nicky Barnby, Craig Hignett, and myself we we had a good formation and got a very good understanding playing up front. Then Juninho came, who was the best player I've ever played with, an unbelievable player, and I was fortunate enough to uh, to make his debut very good. I always said that I, I make it the other other way around because uh, because. Uh, Juninho came uh, and he was a great, great lad. Uh, I always say he's a magician, the Harry Potter of football. And uh, yeah, he put me through against Leeds United. And remember, that was my favorite team and in the, in when I was a kid. And, and, and I chipped Lukic and it was a great, great goal. And uh, so, yeah, so he came and uh, Juninho came and he was the start. And then we got Ravanelli in. Ravanelli in uh, just been winning the Champions League. We got Mikkel, we 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 got Mikkel Beck, who was a Danish young uh, talent who coming in. And then I have to say, as Lady Diana, it was a bit crowdy up front because we just played with one striker. And and so in that season, I got less and less chance, and 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 I felt it was time to move again. When it got to the back end of your spell at, at Barnsley, when did you know it was time to leave England? Was it because of the offer from Eintracht Frankfurt or had you just had enough anyway? How did that work? No, I think it was often uh, transfers are more coincidentally as you may think because Sheffield United Sheff, Sheffield United they sold me and Dean on what the Sheffield United fans called the Black Thursday it was just like we were both the strikers were gone probably probably some bills to pay you never know then I went to Barnsley and the reason I went to Barnsley is that I had a chance to play in the Premiership again and but we got relegated and John Henry my teammate uh, and now my roommate was the manager the first thing he does is tell me to call him gaffer so I, I can't call you gaffer so from day one it was hard for me to kind of yeah play with he was still a striker he, he did a wrong way I think he should have played other strikers but he put himself in the team and and John I love John Henry he's a great great lad but he's not the best manager I've had uh, and I've had some bads and uh, and so so there was a bit uh, thinking of me going back to Sheffield United that I had a great spell and I still lived in Sheffield I saw the players all the time but then my but but one of my teammates in the Norwegian national team he always called me and said Jan I'm playing Eintracht Frankfurt we need a striker why why, why don't you come here and I was like I just got another kid. We had two kids. I bought my house in Sheffield, and I said, "It's it's a too big step." And I loved live. I love I love England. I always loved England. I still do, and I wanted to live there. And then two games on the bench again and and then he calls me again <laughs> he's an agent now and I always say that he I'm his first signing and he always says that and he was a player and and then at one time I thought well German Bundesliga I want to play football I am on the bench in the championship there is no future I was more or less finished with a national team anyway but still 
I had a hunger and passion to do well on a pitch. I loved scoring goals. I loved to, to play. And, I, and I'd also been a big admirer of German football. England and Germany were, were always the two, the two teams or two countries that I followed. And I followed Bayern Munich and all that. So I had a chance to go there. So, so I went down to, to, to Frankfurt and had a look. Uh, we negotiated a contract and I signed. And uh, I came to the hotel and... Um, and uh, the telephone calls and I have a look and I see this uh, the gaffer uh, that, that called me and, uh, and I just took in the hotel room I started with a rant on him for one and a half minute call, calling him all names in the book of swearing words and when I was finished John Henry said you have signed have you <laughs> and, then, and, and, and from then on we were teammates again we were roommates again and <laughs> we were laughing and yeah so then, then I suddenly was in Germany with two kids in, in Sheffield uh, and I, I made a deal with them that the two first months I think this was in November-ish November, December, October whatever so I was commuting so we played on a Saturday I went home with a plane to Manchester then a car to Sheffield and then I went home again uh, or back to Germany Monday night so it was a quite stressful time but it was it was fantastic to play in, in Germany and started a new love affair for me that I still kind of um, use now but I, because I'm a lot in Germany and I was I was going from being on a bench for Barnsley in the, in the championship to play for 65,000 in Dortmund that was my first game on a Friday night playing Julius Cesar and uh, Sork and all that great, great Dortmund team. So, so that was that was fantastic. Well, it's clear even when you talk about Eintracht now, Jan, that they're a huge part of your footballing life. What is it about Frankfurt as a club that makes them so special? Well, first of all, it's the only club in Germany. So I would love to have the same to one club in England, but I can't do that because I got four clubs. <laughs> there is a lot of women I would like, but I'm married. <laughs> Let's put it this way. So that, that is a good start, I think. But, but now, but Eintracht was special in the, t- again, I'm always one of those and I've been that all my life. Uh, I always try to put my own career and sport and football and fans in a, in a wider perspective. And, and there are things happening in, in a football life that is, uh, is uh, well, it's just meant to be uh, unbelievable. We, we had at the end of the 98-99 season, my first season there, uh, scored very early but we still had a bad spell and we were fighting against relegation there is there is four goals four games to go we are playing Werder Bremen away Dortmund at home Schalke away and Kaiserslautern who wanted to get into Champions League with Otto Rehagel Balak and a fantastic great team and we and we won all games and we won and I and I I guess except the game against Werder Bremen I scored in all in the all three games three or four games and and then it's the special game at the end where where before the last round of the German season the the papers as they do there were like so many teams that could go down and they made kind of all kind of as you do at the end if this happened if this happened and then that they had a session of things that would probably not happen and then they had a se- sex section of what 
could happen but will never happen but the thing is what happened was even not on that list so so we are ending up uh, leading 4-1 at home it's in the 90th minute and this is before live updated tables and it's quiet in the stadium 60,000 people and then there is one of our reserves who start kind of counting out the table and he sees a, a thing that we never have thought of if we scored another goal we would have the same goal difference of like Nuremberg who, who was ne- never never ever going to go down because and they had even uh, planned and was everything ready for a barbecue and beer to, 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 to stay up party so, so at 4-1 in the 90th minute they kind of shout in if we score another goal if we score another goal we'll be ha- we, we are all right and like i said in german tv afterwards well i just had to score one then and uh, and i scored a goal around the 90th minute and i did it with a with a trick that i kind of did when i was a kid uh, with a they call it in german they call it übersteiger that is like yeah that is a trick that i kind of do a different trip yeah step over and i get the goalkeeper down and then i score with the other foot and and this goal saved our uh, place in, in in the Bundesliga, and and I kind of that connected. I guess that goal connected me to Frankfurt for the rest of my life. And there are uh, always in the end of the seasons they call me up uh, as the expert on on big relegation uh, dramas, and and I guess that's one of the reasons that I do a lot of work in Germany. I'm a bit like Jerry Armstrong, that, no, 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 Armstrong that scored for Northern Ireland in Spain and is still an uh, expert for sp- Spanish football, like uh, the World Cup was in 1982. So I'm I'm the new Armstrong. <laughs> <laughs> but that goal is such an iconic one, isn't it, against Kaiserslautern? I mean, I think it was Balak's last game for Kaiserslautern and you can see him trying to get back as you put the finish away. Yeah, it's it- such a calm finish when you know how much is is riding on it and I know and I always say that if, if I miss that one trying to do that I will probably never be in Germany again and I mean that, that is that, yeah but that is timing and football again uh, having said that uh, I always did that when I uh, went straight to the goalkeeper because there was so much when you go straight at the goalkeeper at that there is not much angle so either you have to chip it early or you have to use your speed that I never had to pass the goalkeeper so that this was this was what I did and yeah I, I'm very proud they had a they had a Bundesliga had a big thing now of 50 things in their 50th history of the Bundesliga and Bundesliga is a great great league and this was nominated as one of them and yeah the, the, this goal is unbelievable and I always say that if every Frankfurt Frankfurter who come up to me and say they were in the stadium this would be like 200,000 capacity stadium because because everybody was there and there was also there was also an iconic uh, radio commentators because they had this as you have in England and they go from pitch to pitch and and uh, this this guy from Frankfurt he kind of he can he, he's he's fantastic he's Jan is Jan 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 and then he does this and what about this uh, uh, oh uh, it's like a uh, uh, dog's nose he's so cold in that position and then this guy from Nuremberg comes in and we are slowly dying in Nuremberg and uh, when I came home it was unbelievable afterwards when I came home to to my to my house in in Frankfurt all the neighbors that I didn't know a lot but they still the whole house was were into Frankfurt colors and and then I came into my family and we were sitting down and watching the highlights before we went to a party and then Frank Baumann who is now the um, sport director of Werder Bremen he 
he missed the the biggest ever ever chance so if he scored that not even that 5-1 would be enough and I remember I got nearly sick I had to sit down on my sofa because I was unbelievable and and last year uh, in October I met Frank Bauman again I hadn't seen him uh, in 20 years and uh, he was now the manager of of, uh, Werder Bremen and I didn't say anything and he didn't say anything and then he just looked at me and he said are we going to talk about that day in 1999 and I said (laughs) well you had to start and then and yeah, it was, it was that. That is the great thing about football, I guess. So you wound up your playing career in Norway and retired at thirty-five, and then you become the sporting director at Lillestrøm. You're there for four and a half years. Yeah, um, you, the, the the team won the cup in that time. Yeah, uh, which I think was either the last or the penultimate time that they won the Norwegian Cup. So, how do you get from? working very much day to day at a club to the point where you think actually I think my future is in broadcasting instead well I, I will do the opposite round because when I went to Vienna when I was 22, I was always very curious about life in general. I mean, if I will do a quiz, I will do it on politics instead of football. I've always been interested in society, how society works. And I, when, I came to, when I came to Vienna, I saw this, um, this uh, uh, synergy uh, between... Uh, is synergy as an English word, yeah? Is it, uh, yeah? Yeah. So between politics, commercial, sport and culture, and I met all these kind of people in small, in small, tight Vienna. When you play for Rapid Vienna, was the, the 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 people's club, so to say. But I saw also that all of them, all the prime ministers and all the CEOs, what they all wanted to do was to be me. <laughs> they wanted to play for Rapid Vienna, and uh, in terms of that's what were their dreams. So I thought that. I've always, since I was a kid, and I got that confirmed when I was in Vienna that sport is very, very important, and that gave me confidence. So when I when I was finishing my career, I thought I always was curious, and I always followed CEOs, I always followed politicians. Uh, you have a chance as a footballer to 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 get to know a lot of people, and I was always curious. I was always meeting people, learning from different people in different angles. So, but when I'm ending in my career, I. I I was not like everybody else sure of what was I good at what, what was I doing well and then I slowly had to kind of define what a, what a, a former sportsman is is good at and a lot of people are struggling of that and I uh, for the uh, for that and I see I I'll see surveys saying that especially in England and Germany a lot of the players like 75% are bankrupt and I don't know what to do and I, I didn't never want to do, to go that way so I, I wanted to widen my perspective so when I was finished with my football career I, I, I knew that I had to go into TV and need to I have to go do sports so I did that for our BBC in Norway I was I was the first time they had a, a pundit in Norway then they had been over to Sky and, and Sky had spoken very highly of me because I worked for Sky in, in England and they said well you have to go on Jan and that was a good chance for me to start. But I also saw that I wanted to do a lot of, of, of thing more. So, so I made my communication company, slowly starting with working with commercial uh, companies. 
and and also but I also had a respect for me being a former footballer so so I, I I did my whole coaching badge but I didn't do my coaching badge to be a coach I just wanted to system to just get a system of everything that I have learned over the years because I knew that that would do well for me in my other careers uh, and then the sporting director thing I didn't want to be a sporting director I've turned on Rapid Vienna twice I've turned on clubs in Norway I didn't want to be a sport director but Lillestrøm was my club so so Lillestrøm came in and said, Jan, we have new owners. It's not allowed to have owners in Norway because we have this 50 plus one kind of rule that the member's going to own thing. But this was the guy who paid all bills. And he said, Jan, I want you to be my right hand. So, and because it was Lillestrøm, I, I had been there two two spells, actually. I, I, won the, I won the league there in 89. And, and I loved the club since I was a kid when, I, when my favorite player was called Tom Lund, who was a famous Norwegian player. So, and, and and he was a part of that consortium, of course, help me, with a consortium, the guys who invest. Consortium. Exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and so he was a part of that. So I, I wanted to go, come back to Lillestrøm. And I did that for four and a half years. But I said, uh, I have to, I, I must still be able to work for TV. So I hosted our Champions League show. And I'm also slowly building up my communication company. So, so I've been fortunate to, after my career, to do a lot of different stuff. So, so now I share uh, a lot of my life is to, to be an advisor to CEOs in politics and uh, in commercials. Uh, but still uh, being able to do the pitch side interviews and do the football pundit kind of role that maybe is one third of what I do. And, and then people ask me, uh, so you, you're not so much into football. And I always said, yeah, everything I do is football because I do the metaphors all the time. I, I talk about when I, when I work with, with CEOs, it's about team, it's about timing, it's about uh, be able to be in the right position to the right time and, and when to wait, when to be. And I remember Hans Krankel always said to me, Jan, when you come into the, into the box, and he was a famous goleador uh, who was my coach at the Rapid Vienna, and he said, to me it's always better to be a bit late because then you can always adjust if you're too early you can adjust and things like that and and kind of you can metaphor these metaphors you can use also in in commercial do the analyze what's the best thing that can happen put yourself in that position so so somehow i'm i'm still a footballer and uh, uh at the time when i am in norway as everybody else now in isolation uh, i going all through my old stuff and i i see that i have a good connection to football when i start cleaning up in my home office so with Viasat and with Sky Deutschland, you've you've done it all really. You've done you've been the anchor, you've done punditry, you've done that touchline interviewer thing, and we always see you um with the coaches after the big Champions League games and all the rest of it. What's your preference or do you like to mix all of them? Well I started as a normal pundit and I was able in Norway to to kind of define that role uh, on my own for before uh, for like the Norwegian BBC which had enormous view viewing numbers and that I had a chance and I, and I was the host of Viasat for eight, nine years. And after eight, nine years, we, we needed to reshuffle. I had a very good connection to my CEO. And I said, maybe I will say that before you tell me that. And then we, we got another uh, a woman in who, who, who came on and I, and, I, and I did for one and a half season and pundit. But that, that kind of bored me uh, just to be a pundit again. Uh, so, so I wanted to go more out to, uh, to perform. Uh, and then I, and I started as 
a pitch side reporter and and I haven't seen back since that. I, I love doing that. Uh, I am as close as I can and I have to, in every round I'm away, I have to, to fight in a higher weight class because we are a small company. We are just Scandinavia and I have to to compete with Sky of Sky Germany, Sky England and BT Sport and ZDF and other. So I have to find my own style and, and, and um, uh, well, we, we have, uh, you have to build up your credibility. You have to build up your, um, your um, ability to get, to get them to talk to you. And, and I guess, I guess it's a, advantage for me in terms so that I played the game myself but the but the coaches most of them well Klopp that I known for many many years he will know that but most of course coach won't know that but I think that they will know it when they hear my questions because I'm I'm not so much into this formation in midfield I don't care about that I'm more into what did you do to get that player going again after you told him that he was not good enough for your team and those kind of things and yeah so uh I love doing that. It's a bit stressful then and again, but that's that's life. And now when I'm sitting here in isolation, I guess we all miss that stressful time, don't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, as, as well as TV, of course, you're also the father of a footballer now because Marcus is, is, is playing in Scotland. How are you as a, a footballer's father? Are you, are you tense? Do you take a step back and let him get on with it? How are you with it? Well, you should ask him, but I'm, but I'm seeing me from outside. I am, first of all, not one of those parents who have to live their dreams through their, um, through their kids. I'm not that at all. I am unbelievable nervous and tense. Unbelievable. Since, uh, but I'm also very proud. Uh, I'm very proud of Marcus because Marcus is an example. Sometimes when we see the great stories of football players, we, we tend to forget that this is uh, 0.0% five percent of all players who play football and Marcus went another way he went when he was 18 he went to to America went to Duke got a scholarship there he got a master's uh, of one of the greatest prestigious universities in USA played football I was still nervous with a one camera thing middle of the night I was watching every game and I was so nervous I couldn't sleep so I'm the worst father in terms of tensity and nervosity and but but uh, but but then after when he was like 23 or something then he said then I was nearly that old fashioned father wanted to tell Marcus Marcus maybe it's no time that you use your masters in economy <laughs> there's not a lot of footballers that have that and I said maybe now it's time to get a proper job but before he said that he said dad I would just want to tell you that I want now to travel the world playing football and I said okay and so he went to New Zealand play one year in New Zealand it's not possible to get further away from your parents i mean we should maybe take that <laughs> take that as a sign and, and then he then he then he sorted out that he, he had a trial in in scotland and the good thing about everything is that i i haven't been involved obviously i talk to my kids more or less every day and i help him i put up his safety net and try to give him uh, some advice that he f- can follow or not follow but he went to scotland all on his own and and he, he made a trial and they offered him an, 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 a, a contract and now they offered him to extend that contract and marcus is now 26 but as a footballer he's like 22 ish because he's 
he, he'd never played professional football before he came to Scotland as a 25 year old and we took the family over and we saw him play against Rangers for 50,000 and yeah unbelievable proud and uh, he's playing a centre half a big big centre half uh, so he's a different player than me but still I am so proud that he goes his own way uh, and I try not to interfere at all. And when, for example, he did his contract, uh, he, he, he had a help from a, from a good agent in Scotland. I didn't even look at the contract. So after one month, I said, can I have a look at your contract? And he said, he sent it over. And yeah, so, so I tried to, to let him have his own life. But I talk to him every day uh, because I think I, he will do mistakes and he doesn't have to do all the same mistakes that I have done. But I think so good and I mean, I mean he's not on a great great money in Scotland but he went from being a student to be a professional so I said to him you will never have more money in your life feeling than you have now and and for and he has the right ideals and I and I sometimes think and he got a friend there as well playing who, who did the same at Duke and I I sometimes think and I hope that they should get, get more press for the the way they have done it because I think that that could be a way for a lot of players who can do that because everybody won't get it to the Premier League or the Championship even but then go and do your education and then you have two two legs to stand on and I think I think the agent was quite good he told me that the chairman said when he extended he extended his contract and he said uh, they said, yeah, but when will you come again for another contract? And he said, and he said, one thing I can tell you about Marcus, he's the only one who's losing money playing here, playing football. And, and I think that is, well, that is a good legacy of his uh, football career because he's just following his passion to be as good as he can. And arriving in the UK at, at 26, could there be a, a better sign? Surely not. No, I, I I don't think so, and I, I think that uh, he, there will be ups and downs, and there are some games that he and I always said to Marcus when 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 they lost, then you just have to pay, then he will be out, and then then we got another guy in, and I think just have to put your perspective where you are in life, and then he came on and he and he played three games, and one of them he played very well. I saw that game, and then he lost again. He, he will be out again, but that is a part of football. I mean, uh, a manager will always make decisions, and then you just have to build up your credit, and I and that's why I think that sometimes footballers should have another perspective because there is no use of being annoyed at the manager because in the manager's decisions anyway and you just have to do as good as you can and prepare as good as you can and then whatever happened I think what he will learn from his dad is that I, tr- I tried to, to get football into perspective and I still use what I learned in football in, in other capacities and and like Marcus, he got the education as well, so, so he will soon overwhelm me. So I'll try to get him to, to be in football as long as I can so he won't be bigger than me. <laughs> <laughs> this was a Stakhanov production.